Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Did you know that there are 12 stages of burnout? Did you also know that burnout can show up in many different forms within your life, such as physically, mentally, and emotionally? Dr. Morgan Levy is a licensed psychologist focusing on working with executives and professionals from all over the world. As a high-achieving professional, you've always valued your drive, perseverance, and ability to get things done. Dr. Levy helps people to channel these skills to optimize their life in the workplace and beyond. Throughout our conversations, two points became a point of emphasis, expectations and mindfulness. An underlying cause of burnout can be our inability to manage expectations. While mindfulness is our ability to be present in the moment, you can also think of mindfulness as our ability to be aware of our emotional temperature. When it comes to burnout, anxiety, or stress, Dr. Levy warns us not to wait until we are struggling to reach out for help. Pay attention to those around us who may be seeing the warning signs of something serious before we can see it ourselves. She also encourages us to practice mindfulness when times are good, when we can build up our muscle memory to be used when we face stressful situations. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Morgan Levy. So Morgan Levy, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You know, having conversations like this is is really exciting for me because you found me through uh, one of my episodes with Melody Wilding. And um, I'm always, uh, I, I get really excited when people listen, obviously listen to the show, but then, you know, for you to take action and, and reach out and, and say, you know, tell me what a great uh, conversation that was and want to be part of the show. Uh, that really, uh, that really gets me going. So I appreciate you reaching out and uh, talking about your story and the work that you do in the field of psychology. So um, looking forward to seeing where this conversation goes. Thank you. So, yeah. I'm such a fangirl of her. When I heard the episode, I really loved it. And then I was listening to a few other episodes and I was like, Oh, you know, I like this. I like the vibe. I want to reach out. Well, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Melody's, uh, uh, one of she's on the, the two timers club, I guess I'm calling it now. So I'm, and I'm sure she'll be back on next year. So she's, mm-hmm. uh, she's, uh, her work is great. Um, and we'll link to those conversations in our, our show notes, but Let's let's skip back to you and have you walk our audience through who you are, your background, and how you came into the field of, of psychology. Yeah. So I am in South Florida and I'm a licensed psychologist. So I've always been the type of person who loves hearing people's stories and reading stories and trying to go deeper to understand why people do the things that they do. And it just sort of naturally led me to the field of psychology. 
And once I started, you know, working in the field and seeing clients, I began to notice for some reason, a lot of the people that I tend to work with are perfectionists who don't think they're perfectionists, who try to balance so many different areas of their life. So working, relationships, family, being a parent, being a friend, having hobbies, and they all tend to experience similar struggles. And so I just started noticing that that's who I tend to work with. And that's who I was drawn to. Interesting. And and I think what you just described were probably 99.9% of the, the people that listen to our show. Um, <laughs> it's it's busy parents that are really struggling with how how to do it all. And that's the that's a that's a question I've been wrestling with for really the last two to three years, and and we've talked about it at great lengths on the show is helping people define what enough is. And going through the work that I do as a financial advisor, most people think that you know I just start with you know numbers and spreadsheets, and it's really just the opposite. I start on the I'll call it the other side of the the balance sheet, if you will, the other side of the ledger where it's look walk us through what your you know family values and purposes are. And then from there, identify what objectives you want to achieve and then get into action items. And then we'll start talking about numbers. So having people like you on the show, um, I love having these conversations with because I think one of the things that people struggle with is trying to figure out, okay, what are my values? What are What is my my purpose? And so I know we'll, we'll, we'll get into that um, a little bit today, but I know that you focus a lot on perfectionism. And so why don't why don't we kind of start there and walk us through what does that really mean and how does that affect our lives both positively and negatively? Because I think it always has like a negative connotation to it. Yes, definitely. And I definitely want to get into that because I know so many people focus on overcoming perfectionism, but the reality is our perfectionism can serve us really, really well. So a, a lot of times perfectionists don't necessarily think they're a perfectionist. They think a perfectionist is somebody who is neat, is organized, and who has everything all together. But that's not usually how perfectionism shows up. So in general, perfectionism is it's more of a personality style that exists on a spectrum. And perfectionists tend to live their lives and evaluate themselves based off of expectations. And where it gets, you know, troublesome is where these expectations are usually impossible to meet. Like they they can never be met in any aspect of their life. And they might come from themselves or it might come from others. And it can show up as a strong sense of needing to control how somebody is showing up in the world, what they look like, uh, trying to hide mistakes or imperfections, and also expecting perfection from others, which can harm relationships. So that that's a point I would I really like to to dive a little bit deeper in is expectations. And obviously, when when we have high expectations and we miss them, you know, we we feel awful. Versus if we have lower expectations and you know we hit a home run, then you know we feel just the opposite. I think that's a really underrated, I don't know if the word quality is the right word, but how how do we best manage expectations? Mm, I love that question. So I think when we don't meet our expectations and we feel really bad, the problem is usually because we're equating our worth and our value 
with an outcome. So then when we don't do as well as we would have liked, then we feel pretty bad about ourselves because, and we view ourselves as worthless. One of the techniques that I love to work on when it comes to managing expectations in a way that's more realistic is the concept of good enough. There's so many times where we do something, but if we really sat back and thought about it, we're probably working 10,000 times harder than we need to be to still get the A, to still be successful, to still, you know, strive and do really well. And if we took a step back, we could see we could lower our expectations and still be good enough and achieve all the outcomes that we want to achieve. So how do we, can you walk us through like a couple of steps of like, how, how do we define good enough? I, you know, probably the most popular phrase is like the 80, 20 rule, you know, but Mm -hmm. is there, is there specific things that, that you work with, with your clients on, on, on how to identify, you know, what is good enough? Yeah. So you would want it. This is definitely on a situational basis. So you would think about the situation and you would think, okay, what is it that I would normally do in this situation? Then you think, okay, if I were to, you know, write out down all the steps and look at different areas where if you were to lower your expectations, what the outcome would be. And then you could decide where that good enough point is. Now I, I do want to point out. So a friend of mine, she's an attorney and she said, well, if I'm not a perfectionist, if I just if I was only reaching for good enough, I would never have been made partner. I need to pay attention to all the details and be perfect. And I get that. There's some situations where we really have to strive for perfection, even though I don't think perfection exists, but we still want to have those high expectations. It's the situations we want to look for situations that we can lower and not really have any consequences. So something really simple could be the amount of time spent writing an email. So like sometimes, you know, you could think about you spend so long crafting this perfectly worded email to just get a response back a few minutes later that it's just two words saying, okay, good, or sounds great. Now that's definitely a situation where we could have taken the time to look to see, okay, do we really have to put in all this effort or can we lower it a little bit? Uh, I I had to laugh at, at when I was, when you were explaining that, because I remember last week I spent almost an hour on an email back to to a client that I'm potentially working with. And at the end of it, I'm like, and I looked at the clock, I'm like, I can't believe I just spent an hour on that email. But I, and I don't, I don't know, maybe I was striving for per- perfection. Um, but I, but I think what I, what I most wanted to achieve was answering all of their, their questions because when, when most people, you'll make that first phone call to me, um, it's not, it's, it's with a lot of anxiety fear and stress. And I know that I'm very uh, acute to, um, you know, people spilling their whole financial life in front of me. And then, and it ends up being more than just their financial life. It's their personal life too. And that's the one thing that, that I think more so what I do and as, as an, a financial advisor is more like your work, more psychological than it is financial and that, that mirroring of, of the two. But you know, I really wanted to strive to you know answer their their questions and make sure that they felt comfortable and understood and heard. And for whatever reason, it just it took me an hour to get that email out. Yeah, and and so I would say maybe that is a situation where it makes sense that you were working a little bit harder on it because it's it's your career, it's the well being, it's looking after other people. So sometimes it makes sense when we do that. And that's why I like to call it fine tuning our perfectionism rather than overcoming it. Yeah. I think, 
I think the, the word you also use with that is, is situational. Like you, mm-hmm. you got to be aware of what the situation calls for. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes in situations we have to look at if we're acting a certain way because it's what we truly want or value, or if we're acting a certain way because we think that's how we should be acting based off of others' expectations. So one of the one of the things that that we had talked about emailing back and forth and, and preparing for, for our conversation is one of the things that you focus on is having success in the workplace without sacrificing personal identity and core values. And if we, if we unpack that a little bit, I know that, um, you know, in, in the research I've read this, this really affects moms more so than, than dads. Can you walk us through like in, in the word I hate to use, <laughs> even though it's in the show title, is, is the word balance because I don't think necessarily balance exists in life. I think there's going back to your point of, of, of situations, there's situations or life cycles, if you will, where your work requires more of you than than you know your your personal life, whether that's being a parent or your 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 you know career, or just the opposite where your family is demanding more from you. Um, and, and you needing to focus on that more so than, than your career. So it's, I, I had this conversation with, um, Gary Nesner, who's a FBI, uh, hostage negotiator of all people. And we're talking about this, this teeter totter. And most people think balance is like this even teeter totter and it's never right. even, you know, you're, you're either on one side or the other of that teeter totter. And it's trying to find the, the harmony in, in those yep. situations. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I like to use either work-life harmony or just work-life ease, where we figure out how it all goes together and what we need to do at different moments in our life. And when you bring up moms, it's true because research does show that women tend to struggle a little bit more with burnout and having that work-life harmony. So, and that's because they have so many different roles to juggle, being a mom, sometimes being a spouse, being a partner, being a friend. And then at the workplace, it's it's hard to navigate that and to figure out how to balance it in a way that feels right for them. Yeah. I was actually just having this conversation with, with my wife, Teresa about, you know, our, you know, having, you know, these deep relationships with some of our friends and how we don't necessarily have those, like we, we maybe used to. And, She's like, you like, why is that? Well, like, well, it's it's pretty easy. Like, we have a set of triplets plus one. Uh, you have a pretty demanding career right now. Um, you know, Tama is is still in in major growth mode. Um, and you know, even this time of the year, it gets it gets challenging with with events and things like that. But I think one of the things this this show has always been about, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, is that. I think people really underestimate the amount of life transitions they go through. And for us personally, in our family, one of our major life transitions this year was our triplets going from elementary school to middle school and talk about like needing to focus on that and spending much more time with them. Um, that's you, you know, I've had Laura Vanderkam, who's a uh, time specialist on, and her big thing, like, you only have 168 hours a week. You know, that's all you get. Everybody gets the same amount. And, you know, it's how do you slice that up? How do you slice that up to, to, to find that harmony, if you will? 
Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. And it, you know, there's a uh, research statistic that I tell people and they start to panic because they don't know how they could implement it. But research shows that for every 90 minutes of work or something you're doing that's stressful, your body needs 20 minutes of rest. And that rest could be something that's meaningful for you, spending time with your family, um, meditating, journaling, going for a walk. But sometimes we get so caught up in this pressure to perform and all of the things we have to do that we don't take that intentional time to just rest and recover. When you're when you're working with clients and, and this kind of conversation comes up, you know, personally, I often and I know those stats pretty well that you just that you just uh, quoted. Is it's really hard to to make to stop and take that twenty minutes? So do you do you have any insight in like when you're having conversations about how to actually do that? Like how to, how to walk away? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's interesting because most, most of the people that I work with, yeah, some people it really is difficult to put it into their schedule, but most of the time it's that they don't value that rest. They view that time off that time to recharge as being lazy or as a waste of time rather than viewing it as an opportunity for them to recover so that they're more productive afterwards. So typically what we do is we talk through that expectation of always having to be productive, always having to produce. We explore where that comes from. We sort of break that down a little bit. And sometimes the people I work with, they don't buy into it, but they tried anyways, just just to see how it helps. And then they start to notice over time, it makes such a difference in how they feel and also how they relate, especially to their family, where they're not maybe irritable after work or trying to withdraw or close off, they're able to engage more. So that's interesting because the word I just picked up on when you said that was expectations. So mm. it, it it comes back to being able to somehow level set expectations and, and how, it, how do we do that? Like how, how, how do we go through a process? Because the thing is, is I think most people can start to feel like when their blood pressure is going up and they, and they, and they are irritable and they kind of lash out. I know I do this with my kids. I, I know I mentioned this many times on, on this, uh, on this podcast. It, it's like, it's like a car wreck. It's like you, you just, you could see it and you just keep going towards it rather than, uh, you know, pausing, catching your breath and you just run right through the stop sign. Ooh, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking of a technique, one of my favorite mindfulness techniques, which is called the stop technique. And so a lot of times, like, like you're saying, we're sort of in it and we're like, oh no, we're, we're already feeling overwhelmed. What, What do we do now? And it's so hard to get out of that. And so one of my favorite techniques is the stop technique. So mindfulness is basically just this ability to be in the present moment. And when we practice mindfulness more and more, it's we're able to become more attuned to what we're thinking and what we're feeling so we could catch maybe our reactions or our emotions earlier in that cycle. So it stands for stop, take a breath, observe, and proceed. So we want to stop, take a breath, and then observe is noticing where we are what our senses are, what we're, what we see, what we think, what we feel, what we taste, what we smell. Um, and, and we notice the emotional reactions that are coming in within us and what situation we're in. And then P stands for proceed. 
because that observe helps ground us and calm our body down so that we can then move forward. And so I recommend that technique, not just when we're feeling overwhelmed, but just as something to incorporate into our daily lives to become more attuned and in touch with what we're experiencing. Is there, do you, is there like a, a, a recommendation that, that you work with your clients on, on how to actually implement this? Like how, cause you could, as you, as you, again, as you're feeling it, like, how do you like, how do you like not blow through the stop sign? Yeah. So the best way to make that become more natural is to practice it when you're feeling calm. So if you make it a steady practice every day, even just for 30 seconds, setting an alarm or every day after you brush your teeth, just practice that and notice what it's like for you and then move on. And the more and more that you do it, the more that you're training your brain to be a more mindful brain so that you're able to catch yourself more and more. Now, it's definitely not something that's going to change overnight. It does take time and practice. But I always recommend starting out when you're feeling calm. It's a lot easier to do it then than when you're already feeling overwhelmed. I was just going to say that that's probably the the best point of what I just heard you go through is do this when you're calm because doing it when you're already in the heat of the moment is not going to work. Yeah. Eventually, it will become easier to do it in the heat of the moment. But definitely at first, if you're just starting this, you're setting yourself up for failure if you do that and disappointment. Are there like certain like... um triggers or awareness points that, and I'm, I'm, and I know this is probably all situational. Everybody's different um, to, for somebody to pick up on, like when they're starting to uh, <laughs> approach that stop sign, if you will. Yeah. So most of the time we don't notice that we're already feeling overwhelmed until it's showing up physically for us where we might be sweating or breathing harder or kind of like shaky and can't sit still. And usually that's where people first notice it. So that's where I would recommend starting to pay attention because once you pay attention to something, it becomes a lot easier to not react because you're aware of what's happening. And then from there, when that becomes easier to notice, then you could start thinking, okay, well, what happened just before this that sort of triggered me? And then that could also help you identify what your triggers are and and what sort of sets you off. So one of the one of the other topics that that I wanted to make sure that we covered as well um, that that you talk about is this burnout cycle and how to prevent it before it becomes a chronic issue. So let's let's first step back and t- kind of take apart like what does burnout mean? Like wh- what's what is it? Like how do we define it? You know what what are the attributes of it? Because I think it means different things to different people. Yeah. And it's such a hot word these days that people don't really realize that there's a lot of psychological research behind it. So the way that I talk about it is um, from the American Psychological Association. So they define burnout as just this physical, emotional, and, and mental exhaustion that is usually you know, a result of overworking and decreased motivation. Now, overworking, not just at work, but also at home, just putting out so much. And it could show up physically, emotionally, um, in your thoughts, socially. You know, you might be more irritable, quick to anger, have headaches, stomach aches, uh, feel very rigid, have a hard time making decisions, stressed, depressed. Like there's so many ways that it could show up and it looks different for everyone. Um, So the burnout cycle, uh, there is a 12 stage 
sort of model that was developed many years ago by the psychologist uh, Fortenberger. And if, if you'd like, I could go through quickly the 12 stages because I think it, it starts to show up it, before we think it does. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So the first stage uh, is the compulsion to prove oneself. So this could be maybe, you know, as a new parent or a, a new job where you just, you're excited. And so you want to work hard. You want to take more responsibility. You want to do more things because it's, it's exciting and it's new and you're so eager. So believe it or not, that's where burnout can start. Then the next stage is working harder. So it becomes harder and harder to maybe switch off that performance brain. You might be thinking more and more about what you have to do, especially at work, outside of work hours. And with work, people might start to say like, oh, you're a workaholic or you're addicted to your work. People might say that in your life and you might not think so. Then that slowly goes into neglecting our own needs. And so this is where we... If I can just interrupt, I would yeah. imagine, Morgan, that that's really difficult in the world that we live in today with the ability to be constantly connected to yes. our work. Absolutely. And that happens more and more now with people working from home because they don't have that clear boundary. Or yeah, there was, I was going to say, there's probably there's no real boundary. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things that I suggest for the my clients is that pretend like they still have a commute, take that time at the end of the day, 10 minutes or whatever they need, however long it is to just decompress and have a transition from the work, you know, experience to home instead of just maybe finishing up a meeting and then closing their laptop, opening the door and then being bombarded with family obligations. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So then we have neglecting needs, and that's where we neglect our family, our friends, and our personal hobbies because we're working more and more, which then can shift into maybe dismissing any problems that show up for us and maybe blaming others for any problems that show up in our life, not realizing what what we might be doing. Then this is where our values start getting skewed and work becomes our only focus, it's harder to value our family and friends at this point because we view work as the most important thing in our life. Then we move into denying an aggression of what problems might be showing up. And we don't, if we have problems that are showing up in our life, we might not view it due to our work, but rather to other people. Then we withdraw. Then we might be different. And is, that withdraw, is that withdraw from... It, and you mentioned um, socially, like that's yeah. one thing that that I've read when it comes to burnout is like the the worst one of the, the worst things you can do is to withdraw socially when mm-hmm. actually you need more social interaction, not less. Exactly, social support is one of the the most beneficial things for us. And then once we withdraw from that, because we just feel so exhausted and overwhelmed, it just makes us feel worse and continues the cycle. Okay. Yeah. So then we might behave in ways more irritable that we're not used to, very impatient. And then this is where it starts to get you know, even more harder, where we don't see ourselves as valuable without our work. Like we equate our worth with our work. We start to feel empty and then depression could sink in. And then that's full on burnout syndrome. 
So it starts with this eagerness and this excitement and this overworking, but we typically don't notice it till the very end of the cycle. How how long does it take to get and again, this is all situational, but from from your expert, you know, experience, you know, working with people through this, like what's that cycle like, like from a time perspective, from the time you initially start to the time like you reach like full burnout? Is it is it like days, weeks, months, year? You- you, well, it all, yeah, it also depends on the field, but generally it, it's not this quick progression. It's a slow progression. And that's why we don't Death necessarily by thousand cuts. <laughs> yeah. And that's why we don't notice it so early on because it's such a slow progression. So it can actually be fairly, um, what's the word I'm looking at? It, it, it can be like, um, a hidden danger. I, I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of like the best way to describe it. Like you don't necessarily realize it. You may not, especially y- you personally may not realize it, but the people around you probably pick up on it a lot quicker than you do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's why it's so important to start incorporating a lot of these techniques now, early on, not waiting till it gets too far in where maybe these techniques might not be enough for you to necessarily get out of it. So start incorporating that rest, maybe mindfulness, meditation, social support, or, you know, living in accordance with your values now and early on, rather than waiting till we're already feeling exhausted and burned out. So, so that's where I was going to go next is um, what are, what are some of the things, and maybe you just listed those, and we maybe we've already hit on these, but maybe it, it's probably worth recapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are like a few of the the critical things that you say that people really need to do in order to, you know, put a pen in the cycle, if you will? Yeah, I think it's also important to recognize that some people might not have as much control over these as they would like because of their maybe work situation. So if anybody here is listening who has control over, you know, sorry, I don't know if you hear my dog crying in her sleep. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the the first uh, dog we've heard on the show. So all good, Morgan. (laughs) So I, if you can have opportunities for your employees to do some of these things too. So time off of work now, incorporating that 20 minutes every 90 minutes, if possible, for some sort of rest or relaxation technique. Social support and reaching out to people that you trust to just have, even if it's short and meaningful conversations, to be connected with other people. Working on that perfectionism and trying to see if there's areas in your life that can be good enough and not perfect so that you don't feel that pressure everywhere. We want to lower that burden a bit. And hobbies. Sometimes we get so caught up in, you know, working, you know, being a parent, being a spouse, being, you know, any sort of family member that we forget the things that we like to do and to enjoy. So incorporating hobbies. And then, of course, therapy, if, if it feels like you can't manage it yourself. Yeah, I think that last one, well, the the hobbies is is a really tough one because like I know like given the situation that I'm in with, you know, a, a business, um, Teresa's career, having these four kids at, at, you know, very, very important transitional age, if you will, like the like people ask me all the time, well, what do you do outside of work? I'm like, I really don't do anything. Like I can't think of anything. Like, 
like reading for me is is one of the things that I guess if I had a hobby, that would be it. But I read more so for for work, but I enjoy it. It's not like like I I don't like it. I do. Um, but I it's it's still tied to 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 work at the end of the day. Um, but I guess if it wasn't enjoyable, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Right. And it it also becomes harder for people who really enjoy their work because a lot of their time outside of work, they're doing work things because it's fun. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that people ask me all the time because they see me constantly working. It's like, don't you ever get tired? I'm like, no, when I was, so, and most people know this story, but before I started my firm Tama, I had a a long corporate um, career run. And I would, that was tiring. That was not enjoyable. But when I made the transition into being a financial advisor on a full-time basis, that, that was energizing to me. And I haven't stopped, I haven't stopped yet, obviously. And I find great satisfaction in working with the families I do because they become literally, uh, you know, a part of, of my family, if you will, the Tama family. And so, um, you know, I take those responsibilities very seriously. And again, it, it goes back to, I think, this stereotype that most people have of who or what a financial advisor is. And they just think it's like numbers, numbers, numbers. And in today's world, it, it's not. I think it's just the the opposite. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really able to live in accordance with your own values. And so you're experiencing a lot of that joy and well-being from it. And But then if you would talk to Teresa, she's like, Nope. He's still working too much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's usually where it starts to show up is where our family starts to point out like, okay, we need a little bit more balance here. Yeah. I I know when I'm getting to a tipping point, when one of my kids, you know, makes reference to it and, but Mm -hmm. they, I I think, and and I, I hope this doesn't happen, but I could, I could see, I could see where it does is that they see me working so much, um, whether it's, you know, I have a laptop or an iPad in front of me, or even my Kindle, um, they they see that as work, and they just they they just get used to it rather than then taking the, a moment to say, "Hey, Dad, I I want or need some of your time." Um, they just they just kind of blow by that, knowing that okay, I'm not going to you know mm-hmm. bother Dad because I don't want to disturb him. But um, that's that's one of the things in the back of my mind that I I get concerned about when you know what. What example am I setting really? Right. So then that's when I would suggest setting the example of also taking rest and talking about taking rest because we don't have to necessarily stop working, but when we start modeling also doing other things and taking time for ourselves, kids notice that too. Kids notice a lot. Yeah. They, um, I, I've had so many great behavioral scientists on, on the show in the last couple of years, but that's, that's one thing it's, that's, that has come up multiple times is, is that kids are way more attuned to what's going on than, than most parents think. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, think back to when you were a kid, you probably noticed a lot more than your parents ever realized. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, and I do. And I, and I still probably carry some of them with me today, both the good and the bad. <laughs> yes. We have, everything forms in childhood. <laughs> that's, that's right. So, you know, as we, kind of begin to wrap up our conversation, Morgan, what are, is there anything else from the, the work that you do from both, you know, psychologists, therapists that you want our audience to know, especially parents that are trying to find this harmony between 
all the things that we're, we're trying to juggle, whether it's being a parent, our career, supporting our, our, our spouses or our partners, you trying to be, you know, maintain relationships and friendships. Um, it's always so much to juggle. So I'll give you the, the final word on, on, on where we take that or how we deal with that. Yeah. So I would say there's two main things. One, you don't have to wait till you're really struggling to reach out for help, whether it be therapy or coaching or workshops, or even just reaching out to a friend. You don't have to wait till you're struggling to reach out and to really try to practice when you can mindfulness and that presence and understanding of where you are in the present moment, rather than always thinking about what's coming next. Because when you're able to focus on the present moment, you're able to live life more fully and experience a lot more meaning and joy. Well, that's uh, I think that's great advice for for all of us, especially um, this time of the year. We're, we're, this our our show will probably release in January, but you mm-hmm. know the holidays are are certainly a time to try to celebrate. But I know that they can also be extremely stressful for for families mm-hmm. as well. Um, so. This is one 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 uh, question I didn't slide into our our conversation, but typically, my closing question I ask all of my guests is, "What's the best thing about being a parent?" But I don't think that you have kids. I do not have kids. I have lots of kids in my life, but I don't have kids myself. <laughs> so, my let me let me uh, do a little twist on that because we know now that you have a a, a dog. So. What is what is the best thing about being a dog owner? Because I know for a lot of a lot of people that don't have kids, and even those that do have kids, their pets, whether it's cat, dog, whatever, are are a part of their family and couldn't live without them. So, what is what is the best thing about being a, a dog owner? So many things. I would, I think, being able to be present with her and look at her as she's looking at the world, and just having that bonding experience and seeing her have so much enjoyment just outside in nature or with other people. Well, you live in Florida. And so that's, that's True. a whole lot more uh, uh, compatible weather environment than we're having here in Metro Detroit right now. So <laughs> very good point. <laughs> well, Morgan Levy, I can't thank you enough for being on the emotional balance sheet podcast. And uh, we look forward to, to following your work and uh, probably having another conversation to come. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.